Father, now we come to this wonderful book that you've given us that reveals to us everything we need pertaining to life and godliness. Lord, you have left nothing out, and so we praise you. How kind you have been to us, Lord, to not leave us to grope in the dark, to seek wisdom and direction for how to live this life in a way that is good for us and pleasing to our God. And so, Father, we pray now that you would give us ears to hear and hearts that desire to understand and apply the truth of your word. And especially, Father, as we make decisions relative to the gray areas of life, and that you would teach us how biblically to exercise or to restrain our liberty in ways that bring you great glory. And so, Father, we give you praise and thanksgiving for this time. We ask you, Holy Spirit, come now and do a marvelous work in our hearts and change us to make us look more like Christ. For we pray it by the authority of Jesus' name. Amen. We're still in 1 Corinthians chapter 9. I trust we'll finish chapter 9 today. When Paul wrote this letter to the church of Corinth, one of the key issues he sought to address, as you know, if you've been here for more than a couple of weeks, is the whole issue of Christian liberty. Christian liberty or Christian freedom. You see, many in the church, having recently been rescued from, from the legalism of Judaism, had cast off scruples to the wind and were enjoying a life without constraint, without concern for how their behavior may affect other people in the church and the unbelievers that they were trying to reach. And some of them had slid from legalism to licentiousness and where they were bound by the law and now uh, in Christ, they have freedom from the ceremonial law, but they interpreted that to mean they could do anything they wanted, any time they wanted. And Paul was trying to bring the word of God to bear on those excesses. And so Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 9 to correct their misguided view of personal freedom. And actually, it's not just chapter 9, it's also chapter 8, and as we'll see, chapter 10 as well. But chapter 9 then, just by way of review, is all about freedoms that Paul had, but chose to give up for the sake of the gospel. He was an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ, and so he had many freedoms. And yet he chose to restrain his freedom rather than flaunting his freedom. He points out early in these chapters that he has a right to eat or drink, and we've seen that some of the controversy had to do with food, specifically food that was sacrificed to idols. And Paul was saying, I have the right to eat and drink, yes, I have a right to be married to a believing wife, yes, to be paid for my labor relative to proclaiming the gospel. In fact, he spends most of chapter 9 arguing from the scriptures that he has the right to be paid for gospel ministry. Nevertheless, look at verse 12 of chapter 9. I did not use these rights, but rather he endured all things so as to cause no hindrance to the gospel. And so now that we come to the end of this chapter, Paul launches into an illustration of what Christian liberty looks like or what the Christian life should look like in the life of one who understands what it means both to exercise their freedom at the appropriate times and to restrain their freedom at the appropriate times. What is that like? How do we get our arms around that in a way that we can think about it every day and we can bring the word of God to bear on every issue in the gray areas, not the commands of Scripture, not the promises of Scripture, but these gray areas where sometimes the Lord would be pleased if we did a thing, and sometimes it would be sin for us to do that same thing. 
And so how do we make those decisions? And what is the, a person who lives like that, struggling every day to do it right, what does that person look like? This is very helpful. And so we're going to read this together. Let's stand together out of respect to the Word of God. 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 23 through 27. And if you have the New American Standard, feel free to read out loud with me. This is good for our souls to read the Word of God out loud. And if you have the New American Standard, I invite you to do so. If not, then just listen and be blessed. Verse 24. Do you not know that those who run in a race all run, but only one receives the prize? Run in such a way that you may win. Everyone who competes in the games exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. Therefore I run in such a way as not without aim. I box in such a way as not beating the air. But I discipline my body and make it my slave, so that after I have preached to others... I myself will not be disqualified. Let him who has ears to hear, hear what the Spirit says to his church. You can be seated. Now, when the Apostle Paul penned these words to the church at Corinth, he surely intended to invoke within them the very well-known to them image um, with which they were very familiar. That is the image of the Ithsmian games. Now, uh, I said Ithsmian, and it sounds like I have a lisp, but that's actually the way it's pronounced. Because Corinth was built on what's called an Isthmus. Um, it's, a, it's a kind of a landmass that connects the main continent with another large landmass. And there's a canal running through it today. But it, it was a great port city. It was a place where, by water, people could get there from all over the world. And so it was a very strategic location. If you were going to plant a church, this was a key place to plant a church. And that's exactly where Corinth was planted. And because it was such a metropolitan area, it wasn't just a place for good business. It was also a place for great sporting events. You build the big stadiums, the big ball fields. You you put them where the people are. And that was the case even back in ancient Greece. The Isthmian Games were a kind of Corinthian version of the greater Olympic Games, which were also in play during the years that Paul was alive and before. The Greeks were passionate about these games. The winners were gloriously esteemed by the public, tantamount even to um, worship. I mean, their gods, really, the Parthenon of gods were, were men uh, in their minds, they were, but they were exalted, exalted to deity. They were men and they were women, but they were gods and they were goddesses. And the closest thing they had to real gods and real goddesses were these athletes who had won the prize and who were faster and stronger and better than everyone else. Paul had no doubt even probably been present in Corinth during the games of A.D. 51 And so he would have had firsthand experience to draw from as he was writing this letter and exhorting his his congregants in this way. Well, just becoming eligible to participate in the games was a great honor. And frankly, it came at a high price. Not everybody could could go and participate in the games. You had to pass qualifying uh, heats. You had to, to qualify for the various events. And so the gymnasium which was the exercise school of the time, 
was a prominent feature in every Greek city. Everyone who had hopes of participating in the, ga- in the games had to take an oath that he had been 10 months in training at one of these schools and that he had violated none of the regulations. He lived a strict, self-denying life, which required a rigid diet, refraining from pleasant foods and wine, and enduring cold and heat and the most laborious of physical disciplines. Only then could could he hope to compete in the great foot race, the chief event of the games. Paul, therefore, will finish this chapter by comparing the Christian life to the great foot race of the Isthmian games. Now, I don't know about you, but I love the Olympics. Uh, we especially love, uh, used to be our favorite was the Winter Olympics. It's just something about the snow and the speeds that people get to on those slopes. Um, here recently, since our family is, has been uh, involved in swimming these last few years, it's the Summer Games. And to this day, the chief event of the Summer Games, even though it's not the one that wows us anymore, but the chief event technically of the Summer Olympic Games is the great foot race. Now, I don't think we have any Olympic runners here. Let me tell you, however, experientially speaking, how close I came to being Olympic, an Olympic runner. Uh, you can start smiling and chuckling now. Uh, the closest I have ever come to participating in something like the Isthmian or Olympic Games, frankly, was uh, nothing higher than high school gym class. From the very beginning, the hollowed training of the gods was the furthest thing from our minds as we ran the track. Um, Gym class was nothing more than a compulsory element of public education for everyone, as it probably still is today, regardless of personal athletic ability or ambition. And believe me, when it came to racing in particular, I possessed little ability and I had absolutely no ambition. I can recall the few times when I was required to, ins- to spend the entire class hour out on the track with our class running the quarter mile. The coach would divide us up into teams and trying to motivate us, trying to get teams to compete against one another for combined time. But let me assure you, no matter what he did in terms of dividing us up and encouraging us to run, there was never once any speed records in the foot race endangered. Uh, as we would run, the coach would cry out from the sidelines to work harder and to run faster. But due to our collective sense of apathy toward the sport, his words usually fell on deaf ears. Truth be known, there were only one or two people in the whole group who cared anything about running, and they didn't care what anybody else was doing. They were running their hardest, and they were running laps around the group. And that was the case every time we went. As for the rest of us, instead of pushing ourselves to the limit and striving to better our time, most of us preferred to run as, as, uh, you know, I'm trying to think of a term here, as part of a track pack. Um, In other words, we would all bunch up together and run, or in this case, jog. And it really, I mean, technically wasn't even jogging. I remember there was like the custodian who was walking to get to the other side of the field, and he was moving as fast as we were. But we would jog at a comfortable pace so as not to become too winded or work up a sweat so that we wouldn't have to deal with that in the next class. The goal of our running, as we saw it, was not, to, not necessarily to, to win the race so much it was to make a good show, to make a good show of it until the bell sounded and class was over. That was it. That's the extent of my lo- running career. 
Unfortunately, I fear many of us approach the Christian life in much the same way I approached my high school track team, gym class. We're glad to be a part of the team, the saints, but we're not out to break any records, not even our own. Rather, we live as if we believe the spiritual race is more like running compulsory laps in gym class than it is the glorious challenge of the Isthmian Games. As a, re- as a result, we run in such a way as to keep up with the group. Our goal is no better than making a good show of it until the trumpet of the Lord sounds, indicating that class is finally over and the eternal recess has begun. And from the Apostle Paul's perspective, this kind of approach to life is at best sinful and at worst dangerous. Dangerous because if that's your attitude toward the Christian life, beware. You may not know Christ at all. You may not even know him. As he surveyed the condition of the church of Corinth, he realized that there were many who were approaching their spiritual race with an indolent, laissez-faire kind of attitude. They wanted the benefits of being a part of the team, but they were unwilling to deny themselves the very things that kept them from being winners of the imperishable prize. And so here in his first letter to them, his words ring both of inspiring encouragement and of solemn warning to us. And if you're taking notes, this is the first thing he's saying. He's exhorting us, number one, run like a winner. Run like a winner. Now let me show you this in verse 24. Follow along with me now, verse 24. Do you not know that those who run in a race all run, but only one receives the prize? Run in such a way that you may win. That is the core text. That's the core statement of this text. This is the salient point. This is what he's trying to communicate. These are the main verbs of the text. Run in such a way that you may win. Clearly, running in this passage is a metaphor for a believer's life. In some sense, living for Christ is like running in a foot race. Not a sprint. Not a sprint. It's it's more like a marathon. Long term, long run hard, long. And notice the distinction Paul makes between running and running to win. Paul's concerned here, not about the ability of the person, not about my ability as a Christian, but rather my attitude about my Christian life. He's concerned about the way I think about the way my life will be lived every day. The next time I come to an opportunity to either exercise or restrain my freedom, what will I do? Will I just, hey, it's my freedom, it's my right, I'm going to do it. Or will I, like a, a seasoned spiritual athlete, say, now wait a minute, wait a minute, hang on. Is this going to help my race? If this isn't going to help my race, then I'm not doing that. If it's not going to help me grow spiritually, if it's not either going to help or protect another brother or sister in Christ, which is chapter 8, if this is going to help an unbeliever 
come to Christ or protect an unbeliever from being dissuaded against the gospel? An athlete who's running in such a way that he may win to the glory of God and his own joy in his Christian life is a person who asks these kinds of questions. His attitude is this, I'm not just in this race to win. There are goals to be achieved. There are things that God wants me to accomplish. And most of all, the greatest of goals is to glorify God with my life so that in the end, I will hear him say, well done, good and faithful servant. And so it's the attitude of the runner. It's the attitude of the Christian about his race. Is this all about me? Is the Christian life all about me? That's the American mindset. Going to church is about me. So if I don't like the music, I'm finding another church. Going to, to Bible study is about me. So if all we're doing is, is studying dry doctrine about predestination or about sanctification or about who knows what, then listen, that's not helping me, so I'm out of here. The Bible isn't about me. It's about exposing or revealing the glory of God and my desperate need for who God is in Jesus Christ. This isn't about me. This is about God. This is about God being apprehended by my heart in such a way that causes me to want to run after Christ as hard as I can run. So that when we sing a song like the one we sang this morning, all I have is Christ. It's all we can do to restrain our emotions and our tears. Because we understand that all I have is Christ is not a limiting statement. That's why the beginning or the end of that is, hallelujah, all I have is Christ. It's like all I have is Fort Knox. All I have is a legal way to be the wealthiest man in the world. Nobody would think that was restraint. We have been given Christ. And so, what are we doing with that? Are we making good on that? Are we living in such a way that exalts Christ to his glory and to our own joy? Notice what he says. He repeats the phrase again and again. Verse 24, therefore, run in such a way. Verse 26, I run in such a way. Verse 26 again, I box in such a way. I take that phrase to mean with this attitude, or I like this better, with this ambition. This is my ambition as a Christ, as, as a child of Christ. My ambition is in every area of my life, every decision about the gray areas, in everything I seek to please him. That's exactly what Paul said, 2 Corinthians 5, 9. This should be kind of a life verse for us where Paul says, therefore, we make it our ambition, whether at home, that's heaven, or uh, whether, we're, whether we're at home or absent, home would be here on earth, absent would be with the Lord. Therefore, we make it our ambition, whether we're at home or absent, to be pleasing to the Lord. What's your ambition? What's your ambition? You say, that's my ambition. You know, can I just walk with you when you leave here today? And if we could, like, be a buzzing fly with a video camera. I mean, if you were to watch my life this week and see me do the things that no one else sees me do, and I were to see everything that you do that no one else sees, 
when I have reason to conclude, man, this guy's, this guy's sold out to Christ. This guy's living for the glory of God in all things. This guy's not perfect, but man, I aspire to be like him. Or would it be leave church, go home, and the rest of the week you don't even think about him? You don't read the word, you don't talk to anybody about him, you don't worship with your family. You don't do the things that are basic Christianity. But then you come to church and you say, Hallelujah, I have Christ. It's exactly, it's exactly where the Corinthian believers were. Paul's saying, I'm warning you. I'm exhorting you. This has to change. Paul is saying, don't just jog around the track. Run as if you were an Olympic hopeful. Run as if you're entering the race thinking, I might be able to do this. I mean, I may not be the winner, but I might. I, I, I can do this by the grace of God. I can win today. In the foot race, only one man wins the prize. Paul is saying, you live as if you were that man. Live like that man. Because I tell you what, that man doesn't live like you. You love to live like him. Because he's working. He's working every day. He's working. He's got goals. He's achieving those goals. He's denying himself certain privileges and pleasures. Why? Because he has a goal. He has an ambition. With the Greek word here, Hutos is, is such an important word throughout the New Testament. I wish I had time to tell you about John 3.16. This is the first word in John 3.16. But it means exactly like that. Run in such a way. Run exactly like that. Think of the guy who ran the last marathon and won. The last foot race and won. And you be that man. You be that man. But know this, no one ever won a medal by jogging with the pack. And so forget about everybody else. Forget about everybody else. I mean, look at the person next to you and say, forget about you. No, don't do that. (laughs) Run with the attitude that I'm going to give my all regardless of what anyone else does. If Paul had been in my gym class, he would have been one of the few convinced that he could break the school record or die trying. Paul had no interest in conforming to the general performance level of his peers. And so he writes things like Philippians 3.13, Brethren, I do not regard myself as having laid hold of it yet. But one thing I do, one thing. How many things? One thing I do. Forgetting what lies behind all of my accomplishments and failures, but mostly my accomplishments, we tell our children, the thing, that's going, the thing that will most likely sabotage your success in the future is your success in the past. Forget about it. And that's what Paul's saying here, I think. Forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Well, today, Paul's race is over, long since over. But he now stands, as it were, as our coach on the sidelines entreating us, work harder, run faster, strive further. Too many of us, however, are just, just running laps. We're just running laps. 
We're content to do just enough to, get, to keep up with our peers. Our only motivation is embarrassment that we would feel if we ever fell behind or the criticism that we would get if we ever got too far ahead. It's safer. It's, it's a lot more comfortable just to jog with the pack. You don't get the criticism. You don't get the embarrassment. You just stay up with everybody else and then nobody can point a finger at you because they're running just as slow as you are. And beloved, this is what happens. You know, if you were to move to another community somewhere and, and go looking for another church, you'd, you'd go from church to church to church until you finally found the one that you would settle in. Hope you wouldn't go to too many churches. But you'd find one to settle in. And here's what would happen. You'd look back on the church you left and compare it with the church that you're entering. And you're going to say, I hope that folks who come to this church, when they come here, they say, wow, these people really challenge me. I mean, just their life, not, not just so much their words. Their lives just challenge me. I mean, these guys are serious about the word. They're, they're doing family worship with their family. They're, they're quick to repent when they don't or when they fail in some other way. The wives are submissive to their husbands, you know, and, and they're trying to raise their kid in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. And they're doing so many wonderful things. And look at me, I'm way behind them. And here's what, here's what tends to happen. You get into a church like that. And by the way, I came to this church like that. And I began seeing all these men who were doing such a fabulous job in their homes. And you know what I did? In my heart of hearts, I said, I got to catch up. Got to catch up. That's a good thing. I mean, that's the way it should be. We should be looking at each other and saying, oh, I got to get that. I got to get that. I got I to be more like Christ. And I see that aspect of Christ's character in this individual. I need to be more like that. Show me how to be more like that. I got to spend more time with you so I can learn to be more like that. And that's a great thing. It's always great to have someone on your team who's better than you. Because they're always pushing you. They're pushing you. They're pushing you. They're stretching you. They're straining you. And you're going to become faster. You're going to be better because they're there. But here's what happens. Eventually, you kind of catch up with the, whatever the normal pace for your particular church is. And your pace may be hotter and faster than another church, or it may be cooler and slower than another church. But whatever church that is, whatever your Christian peer group is, they've got a pace. And what happens is you catch up to that pace, and then you say, Okay, I'm in. I'm, I'm here. And you quit running to win. All you've done is you've caught up with the pack. And now you're going to run with them. Paul's saying that's a bad plan. Good intentions. But once you catch up, don't stop. You run to win. Forget about the pack. Forget about whether they're running ahead of you or running behind you, especially if they're running behind you, your family, your spouse. Listen, you need to pursue Christ as hard as you possibly can. And if there are people behind you in the process, be humble about that. Don't even look at them. Don't even evaluate them unless they ask you to. You just run in such a way that you may win. There's a word for runners who are motivated by the, pa- by the pace of the pack. There's a word for those kinds of people. You know what the technical word is for people who, whose ambition is to run with the pack? You know, what, you know what the technical term for that is? Loser. You are not going to win running with the pack. The pack never wins. When was the last time the pack got a gold medal? I'm not talking about relays. In the spiritual foot race called the Christian life, 
we're called to have the attitude of a champion. It means I don't care what anybody else is doing. I'm running to win. And when I achieve some goal or establish some discipline in my life, first thing I'm going to do is look up and say, Lord, I hope you're pleased with this. What's the next thing? What's the next thing? What, what else do I have to get? I want to be more like Christ. What did, what did he have that I don't have yet? I want more of that. That's the way Paul lived. That's the way Paul lived. But the spiritual foot race is more, more than just attitude. You know, attitude isn't the only thing that makes a spiritual runner and turns him into a winner. A winner's attitude must be accompanied by the winner's discipline. And so we're not only called to run like a winner, we're number two, called to train like a champion. Train like a champion. Look at verse 25. Everyone who competes in the games exercises, what's the next word? Self-control. Say it with me. Self-control. I know we don't like this word, but let's just say it, okay? Self-control in how many things? In all things. Everyone who competes in the games exercises self-control in all things. They then do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. Look at verse 27. But I discipline my body and make it my what? Slave, doulos, slave, so that after I have preached to others, I myself might not be disqualified. Okay, exercising self-control in all things. That's what a champion does. And listen, it's not just running. The winning runner did not just exercise on the trek. That was not the only place he disciplined himself. If that's the only place he disciplines himself, he's a loser. There's no way he's going to win. Um, we could say it like this. All the endeavors of the athlete are in vain if he does not if he has not trained his body and abstained from all that might in any way harm his physical condition. In fact, the Greek word here, exercise self-control, literally means master oneself, to master oneself. When you are making someone or something, your slave, you are the master. And what Paul is saying is, you are, your body is the slave, be the master of it. Don't ever let your body be the master. If your body's the master, you're in a world of hurt. You're in a world of hurt. And this is especially hard for us American men and women to swallow. Paul is calling us to a life of self-denial and self-discipline. Self-denial is the voluntary, often severe restriction of personal liberty. There are things that we are allowed to do in Christ but sometimes, as we're pursuing our ambition in Christ, we need to say no to those good things. An athlete's sleep, diet, exercise, are not determined by his rights or by his feelings, but by the requirements of his training. He runs when he would rather be resting. He eats a balanced meal when he would rather have a chocolate sundae. He goes to bed when he would rather stay up, and he gets up early to train when he would rather stay in bed. We have to make these decisions. And these decisions need to be based on what is my ambition. And by the way, that's, that's really how we make decisions anyway. We do what we do because we want what we want. 
The question is, do I want to glorify God in my life more than I want these secondary pleasures and lawful enjoyments? We have to discipline ourselves. American Christians are perhaps the most undisciplined of all Christian peoples around the world. I've been around the world. In some places I haven't been yet. But it's amazing. It's amazing how undisciplined we are. And it shouldn't be that way. And all of us have to fight this fight. We have to fight this fight every day. We have to remember God's calling upon our lives every day. This morning I woke up. The alarm went off. I got up and turned on the coffee pot. I came back in my room and I'm thinking, wow, big elders meeting yesterday, half a day. We're off this morning. I don't have to show up at church at 6.15. In fact, it's already past 6.15. Boy, it's been nice. Sleeping in was a sweet thing this morning. I walked back in my bedroom. I looked at my bed and I went, hmm. Looked at my clock, looked at my bed. Look at my clock, look at my bed. I thought, you know, I'm just going to lay down for a couple more minutes. So I lay down. And then I thought, oh, what about my sermon this morning? What am I preaching on? Come on, body, get out of bed. You can't sleep in. You got work to do. God has things prepared for you today that you're going to be totally missing out on, like keeping your job, if you don't get out of bed. (laughs) Winning isn't only about spiritual mindedness. It's also about spiritual discipline. So Paul is saying, if you want to run well, you must practice self-denial. In the King James, verse 27 says, I buffet my body. Now notice there's only one E there. It's not two E's. It's not, I buffet my body. (laughs) It's not even in the Greek I've looked. I buffet my body. Listen to me. This is what it literally means. To buffet my body. To buffet means to punch. To buffet literally means to hit under the eye. Hit under the eye. Paul was determined to do whatever is necessary to keep his flesh under control at all times. Sometimes you just got to beat yourself up. Or if you need help, just, just call. Brent and I will be happy to beat you up. It's part of our pastoral ministry. Why? Why, why, why go to such great lengths? Why such self-discipline? Because not only was there a goal before Paul, there was also a godly fear Look at the last sentence, verse 27. But I discipline my body and make, make it my slave so that after I preach to others, I myself will not be, what's the last word? Disqualified. Now let's be clear here. Paul is not talking about losing your salvation. Paul's not talking about gaining salvation. And when he says only one wins the prize, we need to be careful that we don't allegorize every part of this paragraph. You know, don't allegorize any of it. We can't say, listen, You know, of all Christians, there's only going to be one who crosses the finish line and wins the prize. That's not the case. He's not talking about how many people are going to cross the finish line and end the race well. What he's talking about is our attitude in the race. Our attitude in the race. And our attitude, the assumption is you already know Christ. Christ has been given to you. Your sins are forgiven. You have been made a new creature. You've been born again. You are now a part of God's forever family. You are in the race. You're part of the team already. And you're running. Run as if you were the man who crosses the finish line first. It's all about attitude. But it's also about self-discipline. 
So when we think of what it means to be disqualified, we're not talking about a person losing their salvation. Although, again, I would warn, and Paul will as well, that, I mean, if you're, if you're just totally indolent, if you're totally laissez-faire, if you're totally, you know, unconcerned about your spiritual health, your spiritual condition before God, because you think it's all been covered by grace, then you have reason to question whether you know God at all. You have reason to question whether you are a child of God at all. Listen, salvation is not by works. So don't come and say, Pastor, that sounds like you're preaching a work salvation. No, no, no. But here's what Paul said in Ephesians, the passage we love so much, when he says, For by grace you've been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is a gift of God. It is a gift of God. It's a gift of God. Not as a result of what? Works. So it's not as a result of works so that no one can boast. And we memorize that as children in our Awana program and whatever. It's a great text to memorize. Our hope is in grace. But don't stop there because verse 10 comes right after it. You are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. The good works are on the back end, not the front end. You don't get good works for salvation. Rather, your salvation should produce good works. Or in other words, it should produce a holy life. It should be a life that is increasing in holiness. It's not about perfection. It's about direction, right? We're becoming more like Christ. And all I'm saying is, this is Paul's argument throughout the New Testament. If your life doesn't show any evidence that the Holy Spirit is resonant in you by your holy living, imperfect though it may be, then the question you should be asking is, do I even know Christ at all? Because when the Holy Spirit comes into a sinful man, the sinful man starts becoming holy. That's just the way it works. It's just the way it works. And so let's be honest. There are nights that I just don't feel like leading family worship. And to my shame, there are nights when I have no excuse not to, and I don't anyway. My flesh just wants to sip a cup of coffee and put up my feet. Now, do I have the right to these things? Sure, I do. There's nothing inherently wrong with drinking coffee or kicking my feet up. But like every serious athlete, if I intend to win spiritually, there are times when I need to deny that desire. I need to deny myself the lesser lesser pleasure of this life in order to enjoy the greater. Someday down the road... I mean, it's like that text that Brent read to us this morning out of Hebrews chapter 12. The Lord Jesus Christ is our example, right? He says, fix your eyes on Jesus, the author and pioneer, the perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him, future, endured the cross, present, despising the shame, present, and then sat down at the right hand of God, future. And whoever wrote the book of Hebrews is saying, Live like that. You want to know who the runner is who win? Who wins? It's Jesus. He's the gold medalist. He did it. Run like that man. In your mind, claim the promises of God, all of the promises of future grace in heaven, and then endure the hardships of this life. And then when God takes you home, enjoy all the fulfillment of those promises. That's how we should live. And by the way, that's chapter 12 of Hebrews, right? What was chapter 11? We call it the hall of faith. 
or the Old Testament Hall of Fame. Those were all faithful men and women who suffered dearly. And Paul said they never experienced the fulfillment of the promise because they were waiting for us. And we're all going to experience it together. It's a future orientation, which is exactly what faith is. It's future-oriented. It's obedience now with a view toward the future because of God's promises. You know, sometimes, sometimes when I go home after, after a hard day at the office, um, which as the church is growing, pretty much every day is a hard day at the office, and I go home, some days I don't, I don't want to do family worship. But a serious athlete is going to discipline himself anyway. And you know what? There are some times I don't feel like going to church. But since I'm the pastor, <laughs> I may hate having to ask for forgiveness from my wife or my children for losing my temper in an outburst of unjust frustration. But that doesn't matter. I'm running a race. And if I intend to win, I would discipline myself to do whatever God calls me to do. God, what do you want? God, just tell me in your word. Show me in your word what you want me to do. And give me the grace to do it. I'll do it. I'll do it. And if I fail to do it, God, I'll come back and I'll, I'll, I'll throw myself down at the foot of the cross and ask your forgiveness, knowing that you'll grant it because of Christ. And then by your grace, stand me back up on my feet. Give me the energy to, to press on and go after it again. Go after it again. Go after it again. In every race, every Gold medalist has got a history of failure behind him. Losing races, losing races, losing races, losing races. And it pushes him. And so don't get discouraged. And when we fail to live up to God's expectations, we get back up and we start running again. Did the apostle have the right to eat and drink whatever he wanted? Yes. Did he have the right to take to himself a believing wife? Yes. Did he have the right to be paid for the ministry of the gospel? Yes, yes, yes. But you see, he had a higher ambition. And so he wrote chapter, 12, chapter 9, verse 12, Nevertheless, we did not use this right, but we endure all things so that we may cause no hindrance to the gospel of Christ. Chapter 9, verse 19. For though I am free from all, I have made myself a slave to all, free to be the slave of all men, that I might win more. Chapter 10, verse 23, all things are lawful for me, but not all things are profitable. All things are lawful, but not all things will edify. Sometimes we're so protective of our right to splash around in the religious liberty that we have that we don't realize that what we're splashing around in is really quicksand rather than liberty. And it gets a hold of us and starts dragging us down. My favorite Puritan pastor is Thomas Watson. If you haven't read Watson, you need to go down to the library and find a book that Watson wrote in the 1600s and just use the Lord's Day to feed your soul. I call Thomas uh, Watson's writings uh, candy for the soul. Every time I read it, it's such a sweet, wonderful, nourishing, and convicting thing. And let me give you a sample that I think is appropriate here. Thomas Watson wrote these words. More people are hurt by excess in lawful things than by meddling with unlawful. As more people are killed by wine than by poison. Many make their belly their God. And to this God, they pour drink offerings. 
Excess in, in meat and drink clouds the mind and chokes the affections and provokes lust. The rankest weeds grow out of the fattest soil. What a shame it is that the soul, that princely thing which sways the scepter of reason and is akin to the angels, should be enslaved to the brutish part. You see, beloved, every runner has an opponent. An opponent. Every runner has an opponent. Every athlete has an opponent. And for the man of God, the primary opponent is himself. His greatest adversary is his own flesh, his own desires, his own idolatry. We have met the enemy, and he is us. There's one major obstacle keeping us from running in such a way that we might win. It's the weighty excess baggage of self-indulgence. Oh, we are an indulgent people. Not that we don't have freedom We do. Praise God, we do. But oh, how we abuse our freedoms and turn them into opportunities for the flesh. Many Christians are enslaved to their bodies. Their bodies tell them what to do. Their bodies decide when to eat, what to eat, how much to eat, when to sleep, when to get up, and so on. They base their decisions on how they feel, and their communion with God is largely based on impressions and experiences which, if truth be known, they come not from God, but from their own fleshly impulses. And that's easily verifiable. You just ask that person, what scripture are you thinking of? You say, God told you that? God led you to do that? What scripture? Show me the scripture. I feel, I believe, God said. Galatians 5.17, the flesh wages war against the spirit. The flesh sets its desires against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh. For these are in opposition to one another so that you may not do the things that you please. And what does that mean? That means this. As a believer... I want to be like Christ. There's a a part in me that so longs to be like Christ. I see aspects of Christ's character in some of your lives, and I think, oh, God, I want to be like that. Lord, give me opportunity to spend time with that guy because I see things in his life. I see discipline. I see blessing. I see, you know, him being a father like I want to be a father and a husband like I want to be a husband, a leader like he leads, a worshiper spiritually minded like I'm not. God, give me opportunity to be around him so that I can become more like you. And the author of Hebrews is saying, uh, the author of uh, Galatians is saying, yes, you have that desire and that's a good desire and that's a wonderful desire and you ought to pursue that desire with all of your heart. But here's what happens. You all should have your flesh and your flesh wants to eat too much sleep too much, play too much, watch TV too much, engage in your hobby too much. Your flesh thinks it deserves rest when it needs exercise. Your flesh thinks it deserves pampering when it really needs to be disciplined. Your flesh thinks that it's worthy of some indulgence, and it's not. And so the flesh wages war against the spirit, and the spirit against the flesh. And so we live in battle every day. 
And the enemy is not someone outside of us. The enemy is me. And so if we're going to run in such a way that brings glory to God, the author of Hebrews will write, therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, that be Old Testament faithful saints, let us also lay aside every, watch this, two things. Let us lay aside, talking about a race, before you race, you're in the race. Now watch out for these two things, encumbrances and the sin. Notice it's not just sin. You say, well, listen, what I'm doing is not a sin. It may be for you, even though it's not inherently sinful. For to him who knows to do right and doesn't do it, to him it is sin. Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. You know why so many Christian men and women fail to genuinely excel in their walk with the Lord and lead their families? It's because we allow ourselves to be encumbered by so many good things. You know, I I love to preach, but these are the hardest sermons to preach because I know, you know, I get beat up with this thing all during the week and then I have to preach it twice on Sunday. Beloved, this, this passage is for me as much as for anybody else in this room. Think about this. Is watching football or basketball on television wrong? No. You have freedom. But that's, that's my right, but that's not the question. The question is, will watching football today impede my ability to run the race for the glory of God? Sometimes it will. Maybe sometimes it won't. But the question begs to be asked, Is it wrong for me to go to Blockbuster and rent a movie? That's not the question. Rather, the question is, will my right to enter a video store become a weight that hinders my race and encumbrance? Is it okay for me to look for a new job that pays better? That's not the question. The question is, will my new responsibilities become a snare around my feet to keep me from running the race that God has called me to? The answer may be yes. The answer may be absolutely not but the question begs to be asked. And every good athlete will ask that question many times in a day. They'll look at what's put before them for a meal and go, hmm, I don't think so. Pass the broccoli. Hmm. (laughs) But if we're going to run a, a race in such a way that we might win, we must ask, we must have a winner's attitude and we must engage in the self discipline of champions. Third, And we need to keep our eyes on the glory of the prize. Focus on the prize. Look at verse 25. Everyone who competes in the the games exercises self-control in all things. They then do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable wreath. Paul calls the wreath of the Isthmian games, um, it, it was the promised reward. And it was a perishable wreath. And he's saying this, if the pagan Greeks at the Isthmian Games worked so hard to earn a pine wreath as their reward, how much more should you strive who have the hope of eternal reward, the imperishable reward? What's the reward? Well, look at verse 23. I do all things for the sake of the gospel so that I may become a fellow partaker of it. Now, is he talking about salvation? As I argued before, I think so because it may very well be that you live in such a way that gives you good reason to question whether or not you're truly saved. Again, that doesn't mean salvation's by works. 
But the grace that saves is the grace that produces energy to live for God. However, there's more to this. There's more to uh, the reward of the gospel so that I may become a fellow partaker of it. Um, What's our reward? Becoming a partaker of the gospel. What does that mean? Well, it seems unlikely that Paul was referring to his participation in the work of the gospel. Rather, I believe Paul was looking forward to sharing in all the benefits of the gospel that would come to him. All believers are eligible for two kinds of benefits from the gospel. One is future-oriented, one is present-oriented. In the future, we have laid up for us an eternal weight of glory. We look forward to the crown of life, which the Lord will award to, award to us on that day. We look forward to the glory of heaven and the presence of the Savior. We look forward to the applause of heaven, that glorious and eternally rewarding prize of hearing the master's testimony in our honor, 1 Peter 1, well done, good and faithful servant. The eternal riches of the future are too numerous and glorious for us to even comprehend, but God has promised all of it for those who run well in heaven to all who belong to him. You say, what about the present? The present? The present is not full of promises that we will get wealthy or have big houses or drive nice cars or any of that stuff. But think about this, Mark chapter 10, verse 29 and 30. And Jesus was just talking about the sacrifices that his disciples need to make. And Peter, being the guy who's always, you know, impulsively saying what he's thought, he hears Jesus saying, look, everybody needs to just, you know, follow me. And, and if you don't do that, then you're not worthy of me. And Peter says, hey, we gave up houses and lands and everything to follow you. So, you know, what do we get? And you would think Jesus would have turned around and said, Peter, Peter, do, I mean, come on. Let's get with it. Do I always have to be disciplining you? I mean, focus, dude, focus. Let me help you with this. Your reward is not present, it's future. But that's not what Jesus says. It's really an amazing text. This is what he says, Mark 10, 29 and 30. Jesus said, truly, I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brother or sisters or mother or father or child or farms for my sake and for the gospel's sake, but that he will receive a hundred times as much now in the present age, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and farms, along with persecutions, and in the age to come, eternal life. There's blessings in the present. There's blessing in the future. The future is more glorious, but in the present, if you restrain your liberties, you may face persecution. You may lose a lot when you restrain your liberties. But here's what I promise. If your mom gets so mad at you that she disowns you, I'll give you 10,000 mothers. If your brothers hate your guts because you're a Christian and they won't come over for Christmas anymore, I'll give you 10,000 more brothers and sisters. If your children say, I'm not living under this Christianity anymore, I'm so glad I went to college and got enlightened, I'm out of here. As painful as that is, Christ is saying, I'll give you 10,000 more children. Where? In the church. It's a glorious thing. It's a glorious thing. And I know you people, I know most of you pretty well. 
And I know that some of you, maybe most of you, have blood brothers and sisters, mothers and fathers, who you are not nearly as close to as some of your blood-bought brothers and sisters in Christ who are sitting in this room with you today. You talk to them, you weep with them, you rejoice with them, you worship with them, you're there when they have a problem. They come to you when they have issues. They need help, you're there. They want to rejoice, you're there to rejoice with them. And the people who are your blood family, nowhere to be found. Understand, God promised you that. And oh, beloved, we have such a low view of the church. Jesus had such a high view of the church. It is his body. It is his physical presence on earth. So I believe Jesus in this text was promising us the present benefits of the gospel found in the church. But there are many other present benefits that we can enjoy as well. God's grace that issues forth from the gospel includes this, the benefits of raising and enjoying believing children. No promise there. But you know what? Your children have a tremendous advantage because they're hearing the gospel every day, every day, every day. The benefit of a thriving Christ-centered marriage That doesn't mean that every spouse is going to come to Christ who was an unbeliever. But it means this, if you're a Christian in your home, you are a privileged person and your marriage is a privileged thing. And if you're both believers, oh, the joy of living together under the authority of God's word and enjoying the benefits of that. All the benefits also that come from the fruit of the spirit as it's both served to others and enjoyed by ourselves regularly by all the members of our household in our church. These benefits may be for the present, but Paul said they are imperishable, imperishable. You will always have the church. You will always have the spirit. You will always have me. We are an incredibly blessed people. And by the way, these are all things that unbelievers cannot have. Things that too many believers are missing out on because they are more concerned about keeping pace with the track pack than about winning the race. You're going to get as much out of your Christian life as you put into it. And probably no more. That's maybe an overstatement. I know theologically that God acts first We loved him because he first loved us, and so God is always the initiator. But, oh, beloved, if you think you can sit on the couch and be a couch potato and have the rewards of an athlete, you're self-deceived. You see, not everyone will receive the same reward. 1 Corinthians 3, 13 through 15. Just turn two pages back. 13, each man's work, this is 3.13, each man's work will become evident for the day will show it because it will be revealed with fire and the fire itself will test the quality of each man's work. If any man's work which he is built on remains, he will receive a reward. If any man's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved. Yet, though it's through fire. What he's saying, he's not talking about purgatory here or any of that nonsense. What he's saying is this, when you get to the end of your race, It's going to be like this. The Lord will scoop up your life, throw it into the fire, and a lot of it's just going to burn up. It's going to flash and gone. 
And that may be the only thing you have left and still be in the kingdom. Praise God for his grace. And there are going to be other people who God scoops up their life and throws it in the fire. And likewise, there'll be a burst of smoke and fire. And a lot of stuff's going to burn up, big flame. And when they go back into the furnace and look, and there's these medals, gold medal, silver medal, bronze medal. There's another gold one. There's another silver one. There's another bronze one. There are going to be things in your life that by God's grace, you did because you realize that you are God's workmanship in Christ Jesus unto good works. And you did them, not perfectly, but faithfully. And God will reward you. And when you turn around with your medals, your crowns, as it were, in your hand, you'll turn them back and lay them before Christ and say, I didn't earn these. It's all about you. This is for your glory, not my glory. And Jesus will turn and look at you, according to 1 Peter 1, and say... Well done, well done, good and faithful servant. Well, how do you keep focused on the glorious reward? Look at verse 26. Therefore, I run in such a way as not without aim. Verse 26 again. I box in such a way as not beating the air. In other words, be intentional about your life. Don't just jog around the track aimlessly. Don't just flail your arms about in the ring to make a good show of it. Find out what the goal is and then determine to score every day, even if you have to die trying. And while you're doing that personally, train your children to do the same thing. I told the early service, it wasn't until this year that I really caught the vision of what Boy Scouts is about. We've had our kids in Boy Scouts for a long time. But you know what the benefit of Scouts is? Or maybe Civil Air Patrol, or maybe, you know, something that the girls do. I don't recommend Girl Scouts, but, um, uh, you know, doing something that's, that's goal-oriented. It teaches our kids to accomplish things. And you know what? They're pursuing accomplishments. They're achieving, pursuing, achieving, pursuing, achieving, bit by bit piece by piece, bite by bite. And at the same time, mom and dad are in the background saying, for the glory of God, son, for the glory of God, son, for the glory of God, son, do it for the glory of God. And what are you doing? You're training them to lead. You're training them to take risks. You're training them to work hard. You're training them to run in such a way that they may win. And you're showing them that they can do it. And they're reaping the joy of learning that they can do it by God's grace can do it. You can be a godly man. You can be a godly woman. But it ain't going to happen by osmosis. You can't slip your pillow under, I mean, your Bible under your pillow and wake up more holy. You just wake up with a sweaty Bible. And so, beloved, if you know the Lord Jesus Christ, then you've been granted the divine privilege of being a part of his team But here's the question. How's your run? In the end, will the Lord be able to say of us, this one ran like a winner, disciplined himself like a champion, and kept his focus on the prize for the glory of God and for his own joy. Well done. Well done. Well done. Oh, beloved, may we be found faithful. Let's pray. Well, Father, I praise you for this exhortation and warning. I pray, Father, that we would be able to say with the Apostle Paul, I am crucified with Christ, therefore I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. And the life that I now live in this flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, 
who loved me and gave himself for me. Teach us, Father, to run. Teach us to run in order to win. Teach us to subdue our flesh, 